Specialty pharmaceutical companies think they're making life easier by offering patients access to a variety of best-in-class support services, but this collection of one-off vendors can actually make the patient journey more arduous and disconnected. That's not good for the patient experience, healthcare outcomes, or company financial results. The new trend is for companies to rethink the patient journey tech stack. Today's guest, Ishai Knobel, is co-founder and CEO of RxWare, which helps companies do exactly that. Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare leaders about their lives and careers. If you enjoy this episode, please press that like button and subscribe. Yishai, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Listen, we're going to talk all about the patient journey and the tech stack and all that kind of stuff. But before we do that, I want to hear a little bit about you and in particular, your background, your upbringing. Um, start with any childhood influences, any childhood influences that have stuck with you through your career. Well, I, th I think a theme in, in my life, in my career, uh, you know, starting from eight years in the Israeli R&D unit, uh, is interoperability and connectivity. Because when you have a large organization, you have a large system, and you have different entities, interoperability is always a challenge. Uh, what struck me was when I, you know, growing up in Israel, which is um, a universal healthcare system that has universal, universal insurance, 99% uh, coverage of EMR records that are connected, pharmacies are connected, uh, and moving to the U.S. and noticing the um, fragmentation in the U.S. really struck me. So I became... Uh, you know, right after I moved to the U.S., I became head of mobile in the company uh, called Agamatrix that invented the first smartphone glucometer. And that company uh, works for type 1 diabetes patients who, you know, we were the first one to invent a glucometer that actually tests into the iPhone and gives you feedback to tell you, hey, you know, you're low, you're high, this is what you should be doing now. And that's where I got exposed for the first time to the fragmentation in the U.S., it occurred to me that your insurance company is completely separate from your doctor and they can switch you to a different insulin because they have a better deal on that insulin. And that just drove me nuts. So uh, when I started Help Around, originally the name of the company was Help Around, it was around uh, connecting patients and getting help around wherever they are. And that's really where it all began. Got you. Well, you know, it's interesting to string a few things uh, there together. I have other Israeli friends that tell me about their childhood influences, like running through the uh, the orchards and all these different things that they saw. I'm sure you have some of those. Or, or growing up in Jerusalem, I have another one who's like, you know, 5,000-year-old things in his backyard. But it was just a regular upbringing, is what he said. But it's interesting, you know, when you talk about, of course, from the IDF, there's a lot of complicated systems to try to link together. And there's a lot of, you know, different pressures and things that are harder than in civilian life and more, you know, critical in a way. But with the Israeli health system, I mean, of course, the pharmacy is connected with the doctor and the insurance company is connected with you and the doctor and all that. Right? So you just take that for granted. And so I think it's an interesting juxtaposition to see solving like really, really challenging interoperability challenges in the IDF and then coming and saying, wait, we don't even have it in healthcare, you know, in the U.S. So to me, that's like the perspective, you know, that's interesting. And I think, you so, know, when you come at it from mission critical systems and you realize What's going to happen if, if you know, one if an air force does not get a signal from a field unit and yeah. they're going to bomb their own forces? Right. Uh, that's called mission critical systems, right? Now, what's going to happen if a script doesn't get to the right pharmacy? Completely different 
question, but the solution is called interoperability and it's called how you put that connectivity to serve the right uh, content. Uh, and even though it doesn't seem to, okay, so the script gets lost. Well, guess what? Many, many scripts get lost and a lot of patients are not getting their medications. So, I mean, we should be worried about that just as much. So you started the company, as you said, it was a help around change to RxWare. Talk a little bit about, you know, how things got started and what the evolution was, because you obviously had this main insight. You saw how it could be applied in the U.S. healthcare system. But in any company, it, it, it doesn't just be, OK, we have this problem. We solved it. And now, gee, that's exactly what we expected. How did it evolve? Yeah, so we started uh, Help Around uh, as a diabetes support network under the notion that, you know, mobile phones just came, just became uh, much more common. And people with diabetes, what we noticed again and again, uh, were getting stuck without supplies. They were not able to afford them. They forgot them at home. They they dropped their, uh, um, you know, the insurance, they got the insurance uh, switched and people get stuck all the time. So we started to help around with the idea, hey, what if wherever we are, we can find, you know, a helper, someone who can assist me, whatever I have. And we, we really, you know, took off, took off in terms of the number of patients. Uh, we had more than 100,000 people with type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is not that common of a condition. Yeah. Um, of people who were really helping each other, trading, turns out that there's a lot of imbalance, but we couldn't monetize. We weren't able to tie it to a business case that uh that really made sense for uh, to, to to build this as a company so but we did notice one thing one of our communities patient communities uh that were there to support each other uh they were actually helping each other to get on therapy they were they were actually getting on home dialysis and it was very often their um their caregivers who were getting their patients from going to dialysis in the clinic, helping them go back to the house and do dialysis while they're sleeping, which was, which was you know, game-changing. company called Next Stage. We're like, wait a second, this is interesting. So this kind of support that we can provide can actually drive a business case in getting patients on the therapy that, were, that was prescribed to them that is very complex and overwhelming. That's what we said, you know what, there's maybe something here. And we doubled down on specialty because that's where... The drugs are expensive. The drugs are complex. It's difficult to get on therapy. And when you look at the business case and you look at the big, the business challenge there, you see that 30 to 60% of specialty prescriptions are abandoned. Yeah. 30 to 60%. That is a mind blowing number. Okay. And of course it's associated with costs. It's associated with complexity. It's associated with a lot of with fragmentation, but there will, but that's where we really find, found our footing. And we said, you know what, we're going to focus this. And the rebranding to our square came on the heels of, oh, we're going to be not so much anymore a consumer-facing, help-around uh, uh, company. We're going to focus on what we do, which is infrastructure for specialty pharmaceuticals uh, to connect the patient journey. You know, when you talk about your abandonment rate for these prescriptions, it is fairly profound. And maybe I'll think about it in a, in a slightly different way, which is, it is so, you know, it takes so many years and hundreds of millions or even billion dollars in order to get the drug developed. And many don't make it, right? So if you get all the way to having the drug developed, it means that it, that it works, that it's safe. And it's for somebody, if it's a specialty medication, typically a very, you know, serious uh, condition. 
then you've got somebody who actually found their way to a physician who could actually diagnose the patient, do the right test, prescribe the medication. So you have those things happened and that it's still only about 50% chance that the patient is actually going to get the benefit from it, even after all of that. And so that is, you know, that is a big enough problem, I think. To, that's as big of a problem as uh, the Air Force bombing the wrong formation. So well, uh, at mean, least if we look at it across the whole, the whole U.S. So especially, especially, you know, just yeah. imagine what could happen in a, in a world where that's, you know, that, that would be a no brainer. Oh, you know, the doctor prescribes a drug done. They get it. Yeah. That's how we should be. Yeah. And I think people who don't, who aren't close to the space have trouble understanding what that means. So I, I remember once I was telling a more technology oriented person that this is true with specialty drugs, including cancer drugs. You know, they didn't believe that people actually, ah, oh, you get prescribed a cancer drug and you don't pick it up or you stop taking it. But in fact, yes, it's true. That's right. And, and you know, cancer is, uh, has its own dynamic, oncology drugs. Uh, but in general, there's a very fragmented system between the prescriber, the pharmacy, the, um, the, the treatment center, if it's an infusion. These are all different entities that all take care of the patient. And those are very often disconnected or very yeah. manual. These organizations that, you know, they're not necessarily tech savvy. Um, and then comes the drug manufacturer, who is the business beneficiary of getting these patients on therapy because, you know, that they spend the money, you know, developing the drug and putting it out there and actually detailing the doctors and the doctor did prescribe the drug. And the drug company looks at this, disconnect where patients get lost on the way says hey i want to help so they put together 25 they invest 25 billion dollars a year on yeah. these patient support programs but there's this regulatory barrier in the middle that says pharma you cannot help this patient until the, the patient reaches out to you and Got that it. is a huge barrier that could unlock if that barrier is removed or overcome it could unlock massive resources that the drug manufacturer is putting out there. Uh, by the way, these resources are also quite complex to navigate. So you want to get it. It's not enough to just like, hey, say, hey, reach out to the, you know, to the drug manufacturer or the hub services and everything will be golden. No. But today they are extremely underutilized, all these pharma patient services. And that's a big challenge, but it's also a big opportunity. So one of the things I liked, um, you know, when I was reviewing the companies, you put out some predictions at the beginning of the year. And a lot of people put out predictions that say there's going to be a recession or, you know, some general thing. Your predictions are fairly specific and, and, you know, to this industry and where there's a lot of people that really care about this and have some understanding. So before I go into those, I have to ask you to explain a, a term or two. Uh, so we, one, your first prediction had to do with uh, that you're gonna, there's going to be insourcing of the patient journey tech stack. Now, I think a lot of people know about what a patient journey is, more or less, and some people also know what a tech stack is, but what is a patient journey tech stack, and who cares if it's insourced or outsourced? So imagine, again, the drug manufacturer putting together this, uh, this support program, copay cards, uh, hub support, patient assistance, and they outsource to different vendors. So if it wasn't challenging enough for the patient to figure out how to get to these pharma resources... Now they also need to, now they're also interacting with different vendors on behalf of the drug manufacturer. Okay. And then when a drug manufacturer is coming and saying, you know what? I don't really like the way that this vendor works, that that vendor works, and I want to switch them out. That's a huge undertaking. 
So the trend that we started seeing in the beginning of the year and is only picking up is drug manufacturers saying, you know what, we're going to take, we're going to own our own destiny. We're going to insource, we're going to bring in all our services. And for example, our hub is, we're not going to outsource it anymore. We're going to run it internally. We're going to build our own sales force for our own CRM around patients. We're going to develop our own uh, uh, messaging or texting capabilities, and we're going to own that so that we can switch vendors, but these vendors are not necessarily going to bring their tech with them, but we're going to own our tech. And and I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, all the big ones are either doing it or on their way to doing it. Uh, and, and you know, that's, that's a prediction that, frankly, you know, in hindsight, eight months back, yes, it's happening. Yeah. Good. Now, what about this one about manufacturers will uninstall patient support apps? Is that a related topic? I mean, why are they going to uninstall the support apps and they put all the effort to get them installed? So in 2015, um, starting 2015, there was this gold rush towards apps. Yeah. 15, 16, 17, 18. And then something happened. Something happened. It Our phones have become so central to everything we do. That and the plethora of apps that are out there has become unmanageable. People starting curating and throttling the number of apps that they are willing to engage with. So today, when you go to a restaurant and you want to pay, you are rarely asked to download an app. And actually, yeah. the stat, the specific stat is that seventy-eight percent of consumers, when they are asked to download an app on the way to a transaction, they stop the transaction. I'm not going to buy that dress anymore. If you go, if you're going to force me to download an app, Macy's, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna check, I'm not gonna uh, uh, buy this thing online if I have to download an app first. No, check out, click, click, click. And by the way, you see the, you see Apple and you see uh, Google, both of them building into the operating system, into Android and iPhone, more and more capabilities that allow you to not even think about downloading an app. So what we saw is, and my prediction is that you know, they're gonna uninstall apps, meaning they're gonna stop investing in building yeah. more apps because consumers don't want apps. And the relationship between the patient and the drug manufacturer is not, they already have an app with their provider. They already have MyChart from Epic. They already have the CVS app from their pharmacy or from their Safeway app or from Walgreens. They don't have the same type of relationship with the drug manufacturer. And the earlier drug manufacturers understand that they're going to kind of move on with the program and provide experiences that don't require to download anything. And we think about this framework as the level of usability that is appropriate for 2023. It's frictionless. I have no time. I have no patience. Get me what I need and get out of my face. Yeah, I think when you're talking about that gold rush of 2015 to 2018 or so, I think what happened is the pharma companies had the realization then, hey, we're pretty disconnected from the patient. Here's a way to actually be you know, with them uh, on their phone. And then there was a lot of good or decent app developers or excellent salespeople also who you know who managed to sell all these apps. And if you looked at the cost per download, never mind per use, it was pretty high. Um, That's so right. it's good. And, and, but in some ways, you benefit from the lessons that have been learned. People did this and they found out, okay, you had all this great functionality. Some people downloaded it, but that's really not going to get you there. So you take a different path. And, and, and we call it, we relate to the, uh, to this, a, to, you know, this, the, this experience today as 
uh, uh, the age, the age of how do we call it? the age of of, uh, of consumer attention? Yeah, uh, squ- squeeze. Yeah, the consumer attention squeeze. Where it used to be, you know, we're sitting in the office, we have an orderly nine to five, we go to an office, we go home, and now all that has blended together, and we drive while we're on a phone call, while we're having coffee, and the kids are in the back. Yeah. And and COVID only exacerbated that. Yeah. So that attention, you trying to fit into a very, very narrow window of attention, and you better get what you want exactly the right time, be relevant. Be contextual. Catch them at the right time, ideally when they just left the doctor. Let them do what they want. Give them an SMS that is very kind of click, 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 and done. Get out of their face. Because otherwise you lost them. So I think this has to do maybe with your um, prediction about the patient journeys focusing on what you called moments of value creation. Is that that what you're discussing there? That's right. So there are very specific moments when you can really connect with the patient. And after that, you're out. So there's the parking lot moment, meaning the patient just left the the prescriber's office and they went to the car. They're still in the parking lot of the hospital, the clinic, and they're with all the paperwork. And they're trying to figure out what to do now. Do I call a pharmacy? Do I, you know, what like do I use a copic? What do I do right now with all the papers that I have yeah. here? That's the moment you have. You catch them when they just left the doctor, you have their attention. In five minutes, they're going to be driving away and you lost them, okay? Or when they are talking to the pharmacy, right? That's exactly the moment. Why did Google, the you know, the original Google take off? Because they were serving you content exactly when you were looking for it. Now, we don't have that privilege. We don't know when a patient is saying, how can I save money? Well, you know, some companies know that. GoodRx, that's their model, yeah. right? The patient goes to GoodRx looking for a coupon. They're like, oh. Gotcha. Here's a great moment. So pharma has already started, but not enough, actually. Thinking about how do I catch the patient exactly when it's the most relevant moment for them? And that's when you can create value. Now, one of the ways that you were, I think, predicting that pharma might try to do that is through more use of AI. And in particular, there's this idea that, hey, the, you know, the hub agents may only work certain hours and may be on hold or whatever. How about AI? That's always there. But you say AI is not going to replace hub agents. Why is that? Not, not anytime soon. Not anytime soon. I think, you know, drug manufacturers are um, the, in, all the interactions between agents, between any representative of the pharma company and the patient have to be incredibly, incredibly structured for legal reasons, for compliance issues. And when you are trying to structure an exchange and you're trying to replace, you know, an agent with AI, it needs to be incredibly structured and incredibly uh, limited, you know, back and forth. So if you introduce an AI and that model starts learning more and more, you still need to stay within the realm of the script. So I think there is an opportunity there. And, you know, we are pushing the envelope on AI-driven access navigation. So, you know, based on patterns that we've seen of patients getting coverage or not getting coverage, can you learn and make recommendations for the patient, hey, you really want to try copay as opposed to government? But we're still automating it. We're still at the stage that our industry is still at the stage of automating these interactions 
on a very basic level before we can introduce a learning model on top of it. So the answer is maybe, but not yet. So on that prediction, you know, could say people would say, aha, you know, the, the solution is AI, replace hub agents, and you say, why, that's not going to happen. So that was something people thought that might happen, and you said no. The next one you had was one that hadn't even occurred to me, and you're saying it's not going to happen. And that one was about digital therapeutics and patient support technologies will not intermingle yet. What, what would be the logic for those two things to intermingle in the first place? Because like I said, it had not really occurred to me. So imagine that uh, you're, you're going to the doctor and the doctor prescribes uh, digital therapeutics. They say, here, I'm going to send you, I'm going to prescribe an app for you. And that app is going to coach you through controlling your diabetes. They're going to, the app, app is going to coach you through um, um, you know, managing, your, managing your blood pressure. It's going to coach you through, through something therapeutic. Uh, and I mean, that's a vision of digital therapeutics, right? Now think that you would also in combine into that workflow a copy card. Oh, if you use it, oh, you can buy down the cost of the app, and that's going to be built into the same workflow. That gets very tricky. Why? Because the first is clinical. It's a clinical workflow. It had to go through all kind of tests. It had to go to demonstrate clinical efficacy, and then it was prescribed by a doctor. And a copy card is a promotional piece that's considered marketing and the doctor and the, and this is the FDA is actually very clear about that. You cannot mix clinical and marketing content. You cannot weave those two. So it's very tempting to say, Oh, I have my phone. My phone can do both the clinical work and the, and the uh, affordability, affordability work. Yes, but they need to be separate, completely separate. They cannot be interwoven. Because then imagine you're taking a pill and the pill also has a discount. You can't do that. Yeah. Maybe you could have something. I know they've had these pills in the past. There's some couple of companies that didn't do too well where you swallow it and it like sends out radio signals and all that for adherence. Maybe you could send out like promotional messages uh, as it dissolves <laughs> the next time. So that'll be for next year's predictions. Exactly. Exactly. You yeah. wake up in the middle of the night and it's like, you know, buy the next medication. <laughs> yeah. That'll be a, that'll be a good one. All right. So uh, I think I've, I've, I've given you enough on the, uh, on the predictions, but I, I appreciated them. And you only have a few months for the, to get ready for the next one. So I won't ask you to preview any of those just yet, but I will ask you a final question. And that is about, uh, any books that you've read uh, lately, anything that you would recommend to our listeners or in the spirit of your predictions about what not to do, any books you would recommend not reading? <laughs> I will not, I will go off record for that. <laughs> okay. I, I think I'll, but I will think I will go, um, you know, there's, there's a, a book that I'm reading right now that I think anyone in the pharmaceutical industry um, would enjoy or appreciate called the, um, uh, the Empire of Pain. And uh, it's, it's about the Sackler family and how they really introduced uh, pharmaceutical marketing to doctors and how that went out of control with the opioid crisis. So I think it kind of helps us all bring perspective to, uh, to our work and to uh, how things can, can get, go out of hand. Uh, I think a great book that I use every day, uh, the, the practices I use every day is uh, Chris Voss. Uh, never split the difference, and I use that for negotiation. Uh, and that until my seven-year-old, of course, does negotiating with me, and then I give up and and I close the book and I and I go back to basics. 
But uh, I'm just kidding. The I think it's a great book with a lot of practices about what he calls tactical empathy uh, that can be used all the time um, and how empathy to the other person actually can help you do better and uh, create more value. Now, that sounds good. You know, a lot of the CEOs I, I interview are at a stage where they're, you know, reading these advanced books, advancing their career and doing all sorts of things, but they're really sort of anchored by, you know, kids around that age uh, at home. So I, I do get those sort of uh, bifurcated uh, recommendations. I haven't heard one that we that has bridged the two uh, just yet. I heard good night, <laughs> good night. I heard good night moon the other day. That was somebody a little good bit younger, but yeah, that's more for, more for a three-year-old, but you may be beyond that. Well, Yishai Knobel, co-founder and CEO of RxWare, thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.